Dance with CTV, behind the scenes, behind the stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos and I'll be your guide behind the curtain to a complex murder trial for a father charged with killing his two young daughters on Christmas morning. When describing the testimony of Andrew Barry at his second-degree murder trial, Crown Prosecutor Patrick Weir said, it's like the plot from a bad, low-budget movie. The Vancouver Island man's trial took five months, coming to its conclusion October of 2019. The killings happened two years earlier, and Barry claimed it was mysterious loan sharks out to settle a gambling debt. Barry has pleaded not guilty in the case, testifying he was stabbed by an unknown attacker in his Victoria apartment after returning from sledding with the girls. Four-year-old Aubrey and six-year-old Chloe were found dead in their beds. Both have been stabbed multiple times. The Crown argued he killed the girls in their beds, their Christmas presents still under the tree, and then tried to kill himself flat broke and knowing he was at risk of losing custody to his estranged ex-wife. While they reported the mechanics of the court process and many details, like Barry's own testimony, reporters had to be careful since the trial was heard by a jury. Guilty of second-degree murder, one count for each of his two young daughters. Of course it's justice, but you know, those little girls are gone. Reporter Maria Weisgarber joins me now. And Maria, thank you so much for doing this. You have spent so much time on this trial and you've given me so many little insights over the months that you have not been able to share because this is a jury trial. So I just wanted to start out with how careful you have had to be as a reporter covering this thing, a, a trial that lasted five long months. How um, challenging has it been just in terms of in your own mind trying to keep straight what you're able to report versus what you cannot given that it has been it was a jury trial it was a very long and difficult trial uh also because of the horrific nature of the crime at the center of it these two young girls uh, four-year-old aubrey and six-year-old chloe found dead in their father's apartment on Christmas Day 2017. Um, it's hard for many people to even imagine that scenario, how terrible that was. Um, when there's a jury, you always have to keep in mind that you can't say anything that they haven't heard. So there were many times during the course of this trial when we were there covering it that there would be objections, uh, either from Crown or defense. and. I would always indicate, if I was live tweeting, that there's been an objection, the jury leaves. But then anything that happened with them gone had to remain completely uh, private because you're not allowed to report that during the course of a trial. And a lot of those things are just legal arguments. So they don't get to hear why one side or another has raised an objection about something that has just been said. Um, we were privy to those discussions. Uh, there were quite a few of them during the course of the trial. I, I can't remember them all, but some of them could be quite testy, for sure. Um, some of the exchanges uh, between uh, the two sets of counsel, uh, while they never talk directly to each other, they're always addressing the judge when they speak. Um, yes, it, it got, uh, I would say, quite testy at some times um, with defense or Crown objecting to something the other had said. I do recall there was one point where I believe the defense actually uh, took issue with um, the way the judge, he felt, was addressing his client 
in the case. Uh, so there were a lot of moments like that where at the time, uh, I mean, it's not as though uh, you, you will miss anything from the story by hearing them, but they definitely add to the understanding of sort of the relationships in the courtroom, the approaches by various counsel. And, um, and now, of course, we could talk about them if we wanted to, but when the trial is going on, when the jury isn't there, all of that is completely off the record. And I think that the kind of work that you do is so tremendous because I think you are in court triple the amount of time as any other reporter. And I'm glad for that because you're so meticulous and detail oriented. But it is such a tough job because in Canada, there are no cameras allowed in courtrooms. And so I feel like the public has this perception of what we see on TV. Uh, these dramatizations on The Good Wife for all sorts of TV shows or American style where, where you do actually see it and our system is just so different. And aside from the, the, the jury um, aspect of, of you having to be careful, I mean, you're also in a situation where you're trying to tell a TV story or even a written story in a in a context where there are no pictures allowed in the courtroom uh there's no cameras there's you can't you can we can record for note-taking purposes accredited journalists but it is a very very actually difficult thing to be able to report on court in canada and i don't think people um really have a grasp on how tough that can be it's true that it definitely isn't i've never really seen anything quite as flamboyant perhaps as the things you see on uh you know dramatized uh court and crime shows on television um everything's a lot more uh, detailed, meticulous, and uh, very step-by-step. Um, step. I mean, when you're watching a Crown or, or, or Defense question a witness, uh, it's not going to be necessarily high drama, but you can see them building towards a point, and it's usually a, a very slowly, very calmly, uh, very meticulously, as I said. Um, but it's fascinating to see where it goes, because when they start a line of questioning with someone, and at first you may think, hmm, I wonder where this is going. What are they trying to build to? And then eventually they reach their point. Uh, it's, it, it's pretty fascinating to see that. I'll, I'll give you one example that I can think of. Um, when the Crown uh, was cross-examining Andrew Barry, which in and, in and of itself was an unusual thing to see in our justice system generally, because it's not every day that the accused, particularly in a, in a murder trial, gets up to testify in their own defense. Andrew Barry did that in this trial. He was uh, on the stand for eight days and he was cross-examined for five of those days. Uh, the only ever the only other case I can recall where I've ever seen an accused cross-examined was uh, uh, a trial uh, involving Kelly Ellard many years ago. So this was interesting to see. And there was one point in the cross-examination where the prosecutor, Patrick Weir, was asking Barry a lot of questions about this person called Paul. Uh, we heard a bit about Paul if you followed the stories of this case. Andrew Barry said that Paul was a loan shark that he came to know uh, through his years of gambling uh, at casinos in Vancouver, particularly the River Rock Casino. He testified he never knew his last name and uh, could only give a very vague description of him. So Patrick Weir, the prosecutor in cross-examination, really pressed him on this. He started asking, well, you know, when you say he was a tall man, a believed uh, um, Asian in his 50s, well, what else can you say? What kind of clothes did he like to wear? What did you guys talk about when you went outside on your smoke breaks? Uh, was he married? Did he have a girlfriend? What did you know about him? And he really started just step-by-step step pressing for more detail. And then at the end of that, uh, when there was little information that seemed to come from Barry, 
you know, we're just kind of tied everything up by saying, well, wait a minute, didn't you say that you knew this guy over the course of 20 years? How is it possible that, you know, you know so little about him? And you see those sort of circular patterns a lot of the time in uh, in questioning. Another thing you see, which we saw during the cross-examination of Barry, is the Crown moving from topic to topic and time time frame to time frame very quickly. I, I actually found that the pace of the cross-examination was very quick. And uh, that's a strategy as well. They're jumping around in an attempt, I, I feel, I mean, not being a legal expert or a lawyer, but it seems to me that, that being asked questions with a pattern like that might throw someone off, might make them get a little bit confused, you know, especially when you're moving quickly from topic to topic and, and time frame to time frame. So, um, I mean, it, it, it is sort of very interesting to watch that unravel and see them get to the point that they're trying to make. Uh, and it can be quite intense, too. In terms of covering something with no pictures, uh, in term, the trial process itself, I mean, that can be difficult. We do uh, hire a court sketch artists, obviously, that can go and provide uh, somewhat of a window into what we're seeing in court. Um, they'll usually do a picture of the accused, sometimes of the, the judge and the lawyers. Uh, we're not allowed to do um, very uh, uh, detailed uh, drawings of the jury because their identities are are, are protected. Uh, we're not really allowed to know anything about them. Uh, in this case, there were uh, nine men and three women, and that's usually all uh, you, you hear about them often, is just that in terms of a description. Um, we also have the ability to apply for uh, materials that are uh, presented as evidence in the case. Sometimes that can help illustrate what we are seeing in court and be able to share that with people who are following this story. Uh, in this case, we successfully applied for a few different things. There was surveillance video footage of Barry and his two daughters on December 24th visiting a few different locations, including a community center and a grocery store. And um, there were also photos, evidence photos, that were taken in Barry's apartment by police uh, following the killings. Um, now, there were many photos. Uh, we did not apply for all of those photos uh, for good reason, for starters. Some photos can help you tell the story and give people a sense of what the jury is seeing, what the courtroom is seeing. But there were also many photos uh, I didn't even see all of them, and I'm grateful for that, uh, that, as you can imagine, with the nature of this case, were very, very graphic and disturbing. And um, those, uh, you know, we don't ha you don't have to see a, a photo. A, jur a juror should, because they're trying to make a decision, but no one else needs to see those things to, to understand how, how horrific this case is. I mean, you just, you hear what happened and you just know. Um, Whereas seeing things like the unopened presents under the Christmas tree, which became a key questioning point for the Crown, when you can actually see that. That has a poignancy and a heartbreak in and of itself, I think, that I th would reach more people on a personal level than seeing pools of blood or any other graphic stuff that we would probably not show on a newscast, given that it was children um, who were killed here. Those presents, I mean, that is, it's devastating. It is, and um, it's a it's difficult as well. But but it's also a very key point for uh, for for the it was a key point for the crown to point that out and to ask Barry about that. So it had it had a, a value and a context within the nature of the trial. Um, but it is heartbreaking. I mean, 
the images of uh, this note to Santa, I, I think that um, the notes that they wrote, that was probably one of the hardest things for me to see. Um, there's a, a picture of a note uh, I believe it was written by Chloe, and it's in uh, sort of a green felt pen. And it's, you know, you can tell it was written by a child, just the way that the handwriting is. And it says, "Dear Santa, you know, we left you some bunny crackers." Um, I believe it was found on the table in uh, in Barry's home, and then there was a little bowl next to it, which had maybe some crumbs in it, but it was empty. They also left. Uh, uh, a toothbrush, a new toothbrush for Santa, and then indicated that that was also for him. And the toothbrush was still sitting there in its original packaging. It was unopened. So um, those things are, they're hard to see of their own accord. They're not uh, necessarily graphic, but as you just said, the emotional weight of those things and the understanding that, you know, I think we can all appreciate that this is one of the most exciting times of year for children. It's a time where you're, it's full of magic, you're you know, you know there are presents coming, you're going to be with your family, you're probably going to be doing fun things, you're not at school. Um, and these were all things you can anticipate that any child will be looking forward to. And then on top of that, as in all these cases where um, parents are accused of killing their children, you not only have them at this time of year that's special, but you have them in the care of somebody who they would feel safe with one of the people one of the few people in the, in the whole world that they would feel safe and, and, and with and protected by and it's in cases like this where you know the decision ends up being that that feeling of safety was betrayed so terribly that is just devastating so you know you never want to forget who's really at the center of this and that, and that is those are the victims you know and in, in, in cases where the victims are children you always want to make sure that that stays at the forefront here. You're a mom yourself, and I can see that this really impacted you just as a parent covering this, not just the, the duration of, of this trial that it lasted so long. How, if you don't mind my asking, how did you handle hearing these details and then going home and trying to live a normal life? Like, did you need some time to decompress or, or what did you do to kind of deal with, with the horrible things that you heard that you only, a fraction of which you reported on the air, but how did you deal with that? I think, um, I mean, Anybody who went to the trial, I'm sure, would be affected. And I, and I, and I will say, I think a lot about those jurors, uh, and I hope they're doing okay, because they saw much more than, than we ever saw in the gallery. They saw everything. Um, and I think about even, you know, the lawyers involved. And, man, imagine the first responders that dealt with this. And then, I, you know, the, of course, at the top of that list is, is the family that's left without these little girls. For me, personally, uh, you know, my daughter is the age that Aubrey was. Um, and so, I, f I mean, of course, I found it, some of the details were, were very difficult. And um, I will admit that sometimes when I would go home, you know, you sort of try to block it out, but sometimes things just kind of play through your mind a bit. Um, taking a step away is good. Um, giving my daughter lots of hugs is good. Um, and just trying to compartmentalize those those parts of your life, right? Um, it was difficult, of course it was, and, and I and it really just made me I can't fathom what the family of that little those two little girls have have gone through. I just can't fathom it. This was also an unusual case in that um, for people who only have a very limited understanding of our justice system um, someone who's accused of murder does have the option of having a trial by the judge alone 
or with the jury. And I think that's what made this trial unusual is, is oftentimes people, um, I, I think the strategy is if you have a technical argument, if you think that the evidence is going to be in your favor, you're going to opt for just a judge. If you want to make some emotional arguments or sow some doubt, um, that decision is going to be made by a jury which does not have the legal background. They are going to be um, swayed one way or the other by the Crown or the defense. So it, it's a very different atmosphere in that courtroom uh, whenever there is a jury trial. The reporters have to be very careful about their what they're um, uh, reporting, given that there is a jury involved. What was that atmosphere like in the courtroom there, Maria? I mean, you've got a whole bunch of, of lay people in there for months listening to this testimony. Uh, were people kind of riveted? Were the jurors, I mean, they must have been exhausted, especially near the end of it. But what was the atmosphere like in terms, because you're trying to report on their demeanor without being specific. What was that like in terms of a full courtroom like that? Uh, it's interesting. You watch the jury a lot. You, you glance over at their faces when there's been an exchange or something has been said. And you try and read them. I mean, there's no way you can ever really understand what someone's thinking but when something was very obvious uh, for example I was there uh, for part of the testimony of the um, a forensic pathologist who conducted the autopsies on the children and um, the judge uh, actually told the jury before her testimony that if they needed a break from this to let her know there's no doubt that this was going to be very hard to uh, to hear and it was and I did w see some of the jurors visibly crying during some of this testimony, grabbing tissues that were in front of them on the... And I mean, when you see something that obvious, certainly you can... It's, it's worth it to remark on it because there is an effect that's, you know, you can observe sometimes. Other times, uh, you know, you'd watch them and you try to get a sense of their faces and this, sometimes they would react to things, not all together as a group, but you might see one in the back that, you know, might have their eyes closed uh, for a long portion of time. I don't know whether they were maybe just resting their eyes or tired or maybe just kind of frustrated with what they were hearing. You know, um, sometimes, you know, you'd see a smirk or something that almost maybe looked like a bit of an eye roll sometimes. But it's, you know, you want to be careful because uh, I observed those things at the time in the trial. But unless something was very overt, such as the jurors uh, who, who were getting emotional, I, I don't think that I would reference that, just in case you read it wrong. But when you're sitting there as another person watching these people, you know, you do kind of get a, a sense or a feeling for them of, of, about what, how they're feeling once in a while. And I mean, you're right. This was a long, it was a long trial. And it was also a, an extremely difficult trial in terms of what they had to hear and what they had to look at. So they, they really went through a lot. And um, I remember reading somebody had said that there's now uh, a portion of um, counseling services that are covered for people who have been through jury, uh, jury trials. That's, that's nice to see. I don't know whether any of them may, may take up that offer, but just to have that there, because I would imagine that if you go through something like this and you're just someone in your regular life and then you get plucked out of it for this long and have to uh, really closely examine the details of, of a trial like this, you know, that, that would, I'm sure that would be hard to get out of your head. So five months worth, the jurors were sitting and listening to um, evidence, to testimony from 
the police officers who arrived and from Barry himself and, and from his um, estranged wife and from all sorts of people involved in this. Um, you obviously couldn't be there every day for five months because as you say, many of the days it was very technical information. So you were kind of in and out. Finally, we get into to closing arguments. Um, did that change the tone of this um, of this trial at all? I, I, I explain what that kind of final stage was like um, in terms of, of closing arguments for this thing. Well, closing arguments were interesting because the defense went first, uh, and this is something I, I, I didn't realize, but I guess when the, um, I think it's when the accused takes the stand, the defense can go first. I think that's what it was, and I'd, I'd never seen that before. Normally, we always see the Crown go first in many trials, and the defense sort of uh, presenting their closing arguments almost in response. In th this case, it was the other way around. So the defense went first, and I think he ended up, uh, Kevin McCullough, the um, lawyer for uh, Andrew Berry, I think he ended up taking, I want to say maybe three days. Could have been more, three or three and a half days. Uh, I wasn't there for all of it. Um, but he took a long time, and he really painstakingly went through a lot of the testimony, sometimes even reading, it almost felt like verbatim exchanges that happened between lawyers and people on the stand. And uh, at the end of it, he made the point that his argument was that the scene in uh, Andrew Berry's apartment was staged by the killer that this was intended to look like a murder-suicide. Uh, that was his sort of parting thought to the jury. And he also uh, was very uh, repetitive about particular points, which, uh, including uh, you have to give Barry the benefit of the doubt, the presumption of innocence, and uh, the crown has to, the burden of proof is on them. So any doubt that you feel, the benefit of that doubt goes to him. He, he stressed that throughout these days of uh, closing arguments. Uh, and then, of course, you had the Crown, who I think was one day in total for their closing arguments. And um, they hit on a lot of points. Uh, one that uh, stood out for me uh, that I hadn't thought of before related to... Um, the girls, uh, the fact that they, they didn't find, for example, injuries that would have indicated um, struggle. I, know, I won't go into too much detail, but if Andrew Berry's uh, version of events was the truth, uh, then the, what that meant was they would have all been awake and walking around. As you may recall, he said on December 25th, they woke up early that morning after having a late night of playing outside he made them some uh, instant oatmeal by using a boiling kettle out in the hallway because uh, his unit didn't have any power in it. He didn't have any power in his place for a few weeks after not paying his hydro bills. Um, a little bit of oatmeal. And then the girls, he said, were just so excited to get out and play with their snow toys that they proceed to walk, uh, I think about an hour's walk to a local golf course, do some sledding, walk back uh, home for lunch, although he said that the girls didn't eat anything because, I don't know, they weren't hungry. Uh, he had a cup of coffee and then proceed to walk back again to this golf course, another maybe hour or so sledding, another walk back. And then when they return, this is when he claims that the girls were getting ready to go to their mother's because they were supposed to have been over at their mother's place at noon. It was later than that at this time. And when he's attacked, he, he, he testified he was attacked by somebody 
He was stabbed in the throat. He fell unconscious, uh, is in and out of consciousness for a while, finds one of his daughters uh, who appears to be deceased, makes his way to the kitchen uh, in his mind, perhaps to grab a knife, is attacked again, thrown to the floor, stabbed. Next thing he knows, he wakes up and he's in the bathtub. He was found by first responders naked in the bathtub with water in it uh, with injuries. Uh, He had an injury to his throat and injuries to his uh, chest and uh, among others. And the Crown uh, looked at that and said, well, uh, in that case, you all would have been walking around. And and, and again, there were no signs of, you know, what we consider injuries uh, that would indicate a struggle. The girls were also found uh, in the beds that they normally slept in at their father's place. So when you think about that and you're thinking about reasonable doubt, is it reasonable to think that whoever did this would have known that uh, n- known where they were, or was it complete coincidence that that's where they ended up? I mean, is that hard? Is that easy for someone to believe or, or not? Um, and a number of other things. I mean, they say there was no um, there was no strong evidence in their minds that the girls had ever gotten out of bed that morning. Their theory was they were killed Christmas morning, uh, and that Andrew Berry then tried to kill himself, and that he'd always planned to kill himself. Um, but did not succeed. And they theorized he spent most of the day wandering around his apartment, um, that which in their explanation was why there was a lot of blood, his blood found around the apartment um, before he was ultimately found because the girls were never returned to their mother. So they came looking for them and then called the police. And that's how they ended up discovering the scene that was there. So, I mean, certainly the defense took a, a few more days the crowns was a day, uh, but it, it provided a lot of food for thought. I mean, it really did. And and you kind of wondered how things were going to go because with a jury, you know, it only takes one person for a mistrial. It only takes one to somehow be unsure or maybe not unsure, but convinced that something else has happened. And then that's it. And um, they have to be unanimous. So when they went away to deliberate, finally, you know, we were all sort of wondering and trying to predict and speculate how long it would be. Uh, And uh, when they came back after just over two days, I mean, we kind of had a feeling that that might be favorable to the Crown, and it was. And so just so that, again, people understand the mechanism, when closing arguments finish, it's not like it's automatic that there's going to be some sort of bulletin that goes out to the media to let them know that the jury comes back. There is a little bit of gentle negotiating and discussion that happens with the crown or the clerk. There, are, you, You're trying to see who is amenable to actually literally letting journalists know when is the jury going to come back. Sometimes it's I've seen it where it's been a matter of hours. We've seen it where it takes several days, a number of days, and you're really at the mercy of people working in the system to notify you. So you card them, you give them your card. We call it card, like, who did you card at the courthouse? And in this case, such a high profile case, such a a case with so much emotion around it that there was so much public interest in what's going to happen with this case. And you were still in a position where you had to ask somebody to notify you. So um, explain if you could uh, who it was that you um, asked to do that and what that mechanism was and then how it is that you ended up finding out. Because I was in the newsroom when the verdict came down and you got the notification and the look of panic in your eyes. But let's back up a second. (laughs) Um, Who was it that ultimately uh, notified journalists that uh, that the jury was coming back? 
I received notification from the Crown because we had asked them. We had prearranged that there was a group of us that had been regularly covering, covering the trial, and we asked would they be so kind as to when they get that word. There are a few parties that they'll always notify first, but along those on that list, would it be possible to get even a one-word email saying they're back, verdict's in, anything, so that we can get ourselves there? Because normally, you may only have about 15 minutes to get yourself to the courtroom to be there to be present to hear what they've decided. In this case, um, there was actually a slightly larger window because of the live stream to the Victoria Courthouse. All throughout this trial, uh, there'd been a public courtroom in Victoria where people could come and they could watch uh, a, a television screen which was showing part of the proceedings and they could hear part of the proceedings because there was such a great amount of public interest, of course, in Victoria and that's where a lot of family members are located as well and that kind of thing. While the trial happened in Vancouver? Dur yes, while the trial happened here in Vancouver, it was live streamed to a courthouse in Victoria the entire time so people could come and they could sit down and they could watch what was happening on a screen. Um, so for the verdict, they decided to provide a larger window just so that people had time to get themselves to the Victoria Courthouse and get things set up there for them to be able to watch. Because, you know, a verdict could come in in the evening. It could come in on a weekend, uh, anytime. So you really have to be ready to react. Uh, and in this case, it was the Crown. But of course, as you said, I mean, we had sort of um, cast a wider net to make sure. I mean, there were there are arrangements made between us and people that are regularly at the courthouse. We can ask the defense. Um, you know, you, you try and cover as many people as you can who you think might be there and might have some knowledge of what's happening just in case. But in the end, the Crown did give us very quick notification. It came on a day where I'd actually been in another trial uh, and had covered that for the day and was just finishing up my story here when we got word. So uh, I hurried back. Luckily, we're, we're very close to Vancouver Supreme Court. We're only about two blocks away at uh, CTV Vancouver offices. So uh, I hurried back. Getting into the courthouse was a bit of a challenge. I wasn't sure where to go. I mean, it was, out, it was after hours. It was, um, I think it was about close to five o'clock maybe. So the courthouse doors are all locked. Usually you have to find someone to let you in like a security guard after hours. And that's what ended up happening after a little bit of confusion as to where to go. Uh, and then that courtroom was packed. I mean, it was it was packed on the Victoria side. We could see on the screen. I know the, the girl's family was there in Victoria and of course a lot of media. And the same thing for uh, the Vancouver courtroom. There were uh, family friends of, um, of the girl's family, lots of media. I think there were even other, uh, many other lawyers and people within the legal profession, I'm sure with an interest in this case because it had been such a big case. Um, and so we got there with some time to spare before the jury came back in. And um, it's a pretty incredible moment. I mean, you know, you watch months and months or you watch as much as you can of a, of a trial unfold. And, you know, in the end, it's it's a group of your, of, of peers, of, of, of civilian peers that are weighing all the facts and making a decision and it's it's a pretty powerful thing to watch that in action and um and also just to to hear sort of the conclusion you know um it was a moment where uh there wasn't a huge reaction in the courtroom I was in, although I did hear a gasp uh, from somebody quite close to me, and I, and I think they were a, a family friend of um, Sarah Cotton's, of, of the mother of the girls. Uh, but other than that, it was, uh, it was 
pretty sedate in our in our courtroom. I think in the Victoria courtroom, I've heard my colleague over at uh, CTB Vancouver Island describe that there were tears and hugging and and relief. I think expressed by uh, by family members, and we we did hear that from a family friend outside the courtroom afterwards. You know, it's been such a long process that this this did come as a relief. You know, they were happy to see the decision of the jury, but I mean, they also brought up the point, and this is the point that you know it overriding all of this is you know those girls are, are are still gone and um nothing changes that but at least this is sort of the end of this process and now the start of a next one in, in terms of the sentencing but uh you know there there was there was some relief for them that day and they've been through a lot of pain I'm so glad that you were able to be there, not just as somebody who's followed this, to actually see the resolution for yourself after having gone through that emotional roller coaster, seen all this evidence, heard both sides of the arguments, but also because the fact that you were there with all this months and months and months worth of knowledge, and Shannon Patterson has covered this case quite a bit, but it, it definitely fell on your shoulders, Maria, and I'm glad that you happened to be working that day and that you were close to the station and not out in Abbotsford or something because when you got to that courtroom, you had every detail in your mind, you knew everything already, and when you turned around and were live on the air 20 minutes after walking out the doors with the verdict, it was a master class in breaking news. It was a master class in... Um, in court reporting, and it was just incredible to see you take a fire hose of information, all this, all these details and all this information, and distill it into this is what has happened right now. And even for us watching in the newsroom, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody was just transfixed by your reporting. And I, I think it just goes to show when we invest in somebody taking the time to cover this over that duration of time, the, the outcome is just tremendous to see on live TV like that. Oh, that's really that's really kind of you. I was happy to be able to be there to see it through. Um, I'm grateful that we got to cover as many days as we did. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of uh, uh, there was a lot of very powerful testimony that we wouldn't have wanted to miss. I mean, from the opening to um, Sarah Cotton's time on the stand, the girl's mother, uh, her, her incredible composure and, and, and strength in testifying in this trial, um, watching Andrew Barry testify in his own defense, watching his cross examination. Yeah, I mean, when you when you get the opportunity to to try and see through a trial, you kind of want to take that thread and follow it right through to the end because every time you go, you're building up a little more information and in sort of your mental, you know, database of you're adding layers to it and layers to it. Um, I will admit that that first live uh, report we did, uh, I don't know if I really remember anything about it. I I, I think we just had to get out there and and. and and it was pretty, uh, I just kind of went with what was in my head at the time. But honestly, it boils down to, it boiled down to, did the jury believe Andrew Berry's testimony? Did they believe his story about what happened? And clearly, they found that they just couldn't, that the answer was no. It was not believable to him, to them. But that's really what a lot of this rested on because it was either his version of events and if you had any reason to believe his version of events then you couldn't possibly believe the other version and so a lot uh, of the case hinged on that and so uh, it was good to be able to see it through and I think as well you know um, when you have a case like this that as you say is in the public interest and people are following it you know it's it's important it's an important role to be able to share as much as we can with the public because people can't get out of their houses and be in court every day. It's hard. I mean, courts during work hours for a lot of people, 
you'd have to sit there all day. It's, it's, you know, it's a long process, even sitting for a day in court because you'll have the morning and then the break and then the rest of the morning and then the, the, the lunch break and then it goes to four o'clock. Not everybody can be there. So, um, you know, it's our role to sort of be there in the public's place and let them know what's happening and let them sort of see through our eyes how the justice system is working or maybe sometimes in some cases not working. Um, but that's what we're there for, is almost just to be that conduit, right? And in a case like this, that's so high profile, it's nice to be able to see it through to the end and be able to share as much detail as we can with people. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Penny. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like me to cover on a future episode of this podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Daphos. Awesome.